That was really some good singing. I think of that brother, Horatio Spafford. You know, he wrote that song. And the circumstances, maybe you've heard the story, the circumstances in which he wrote it uh, became especially meaningful to me I, when I was in Jerusalem years ago. His, he's buried there in the old city, within the walls of the old city. You can't be buried there now. There isn't enough room. But he was able to get a spot there. And, you know, his story is is a sad one in some respects, but it's a victory over difficulty. Uh, he was a Chicago businessman, wealthy, did well, planned a family vacation, and uh, had his wife, and I think there were four children, his children, go aboard a steam liner across the Atlantic to uh, London, and then he was going to join them later. And he heard about an accident at sea. Another ship collided with their ship, split it in two, and uh, he got a Western Union telegram from his wife in London, two words, saved alone. The four kids were on the side of the ship that they weren't able to salvage. It went down. She was on the side of the ship that they were able to, to get back. And all his, his family just gone, just like that. They were having, going to have a family vacation. They were gone. And after that, he sold his business in Chicago, moved to Jerusalem, and spent the rest of his treasures and time and talents on the Lord's work. Uh, and he knew, apparently, the children had all made a profession of faith. He knew he was going to see them again. And it changed his whole perspective. For So he, this isn't just theory <laughs> for him. When he sings, it's well with my soul, you know, I'd say, well, yeah, it's easy for you to say, you haven't been through my kind of crisis or my kind of heartache. Well, yeah, he has. <laughs> I'd say he has. He's been through one of the toughest ones. Uh, loss of a spouse is a tough one, too. But children, you know, you generally feel like, they're going to bury you, not the other way around. And so it, it's, it's difficult. Is it well with your soul tonight? Only you know that and the Lord. And I hope, I hope it's true that it is. I want to move along now in Galatians chapter 5 and 6. We've been looking at spirit-controlled living or the life of Christ in the soul and the heart of man. What it's like... We, we mentioned this morning, this is really living. Living where the fruit of the Spirit is being manifested abundantly in our life. And, and a point worthy of note, one of our special young people brought up a question this morning. Sometimes we encounter people and we look at this list of the works of the flesh and we say, well, but the fruit of the Spirit, sometimes unbelieving people that don't have the Holy Spirit can can mimic some of these qualities for a time. But their true spirit will come out in a time of crisis, and, and that's when the works of the flesh will generally be manifested. It's interesting. That's what sometimes leads to marriages that aren't of God. Uh, a, a young person will see someone and be deceived by what appears to be the fruit of the spirit, and that's why discernment is so important right to spend time with a person and really get to know them especially in a time of crisis <laughs> in a time of difficulty that's when the true character comes out and and that's when we want to be observant see 
So someone tells you, you know, that they really like you and you want to go out and all that, and you're getting to know them. But try to be in a situation in a time of crisis and observe how they act. Because the unbeliever can do it. They can mimic it. Another characteristic is that the Lord has made all of us with, with various temperaments, right? And I, I agree with the four basic personality types, the the DISC profile, the D-I-S-C. Sometimes it's the, you know, the otter and the, uh, the golden retriever. I've forgotten the other. The lion is one of them, right? Uh, the different uh, personality types. And I think that, that those are generalizations, true. But we, we all fall into one of those four categories as far as our main personality types. And, of course, we're complex as people. There are a lot of different subcategories. But we can see kind of the... One of our main, and sometimes we'll, we meet people that have a temperament that, that well, they're, uh, they're sanguine, they're quiet. And we can mistake that for, well, that's a real spiritual person because they're quiet. <laughs> and it may just be a, te- you know, a temperament thing. They may not be uh, born again at all. They may not know the Lord. And, they, and that'll come out also in times of crisis and difficulty. So we, we have to be careful. You know, there are things that we observe. A third thing is that the motive for why people do, when they do things of gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, these things, the unbeliever's motive is always selfish. See, because they don't know God. They're not, they can't be doing it for God. They don't have a relationship with God. So their motive for doing it is always going to be somehow directed back to them. And we might say for even believers, sometimes the motive is selfish or oftentimes maybe it's selfish. Right. And what is I believe what first Corinthians 13, one through three is telling us is that of the things we do for the Lord. The only thing that's going to be rewarded in the end. Are things that we do out of a motive of what love. Self-sacrificial agape love. It's, it's pretty staggering. Because in that list, he says, even if I give myself to be martyred, like Christian was telling us, those, those people over in India that are going out to take the gospel in, in difficult areas, and many of them are being martyred, they could even do that. But if they didn't do it out of love, how much will it profit them? Nothing. Nothing. <laughs> I would give them something maybe in my own rational thinking. But God says, no, I'm looking at the motives of the heart. See, man, look at the outward appearance. God, look at that, the, the heart. And beloved, increasingly, we need to be looking at the heart, not only our own heart, but the hearts of those we interact with, lest we be fooled and deceived. There is a lot of deception out there. So Paul has been reminding these Galatians of spirit-filled living. And I didn't give you the verses this morning, but in, in the area of, remember I talked about the works of the flesh and that flesh having two polar extremes, as it tends to always do, run to an unbalanced situation, always run to an extreme. In one extreme we had legalism, and the other extreme we had licentiousness or libertinism, right? And, and you know, we even think about that in terms of sometimes we talk about loose and strict Assemblies, you know, well, loose would be on the liberty side, strict would be, and then there's a whole continuum in between, right? But 
God looks at it, I'm going to use a third letter L, but he uses it, either life or love, right? That love expressed, uh, life expressed through love. That's what godly living is about. And he deals with the legalism one in chapter 5, in verse 3 and 4. And, and, of course, he deals with it in several other verses in this letter. But there isn't time to look at, at all of them, just to give you the general idea. In verse 3 of chapter 5, he says, And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised, because that's the particular ritual issue that the legalists, these false teachers that have come in with a false gospel, they are saying, yes, believe in Jesus Christ, but also be circumcised. In other words, you can't be saved unless you believe in Jesus Christ, plus add something to his work. So you can plug in in that category whatever ritual you want to add to it. Anything you add to the work of Christ only contaminates it. Amen? His work is sufficient. And that's why Paul, you know, he even rebukes Peter on this issue. It's an important issue when we're talking about the purity of the gospel, see. That it's Christ alone and him alone. And so he says, I'm, I, I testify to every man who becomes circumcised, in other words, who yields to what the false teachers are saying, okay, I'll get circumcised even though I don't, that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. <laughs> okay, you want to go that route, you've fallen from grace. God is giving you eternal life by grace. But you say, no, you want to earn it? Okay, then you don't just do circumcision. You need to keep the whole law. Same thing James says in James 2.10, right? He who offends in even just one point is guilty of all. <laughs> and beloved, I mean, you can just start with the first commandment. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. We don't even do that for one hour, let alone one day. Come on, be honest. That he is first in every thought we have for just one hour. We can't even do that. You're going to keep the whole law? You can't even, you can't even get past the first commandment, let alone the tenth commandment. You don't covet anything? Examine your hearts. We're, we find ourselves coveting things all the time without even realizing it's distinctive in our old nature, see? Paul says, you want to go that route? He already knows you're not going to make it. If anybody could have made it, Paul could have. The intensity he had as a Pharisee. And he had to be humbled by the Lord on the road to Damascus too, didn't he? So he tells them, that kind of person that does that, in verse 4, you become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. I'm sure thankful my relationship with God is on the basis of grace. I can't do it. I can't even come close to doing it. And then, even with his Holy Spirit, I still fall all the time and fail. How about you? I want to go on the basis of grace. And therefore, who gets all the credit? Jesus Christ, see, as it should be. So that's the issue of legalism. The issue of license or libertinism he deals with in verse 13 and 14, for you, brethren, still in chapter 5, you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Now, that's where he began chapter 5, verse 1. You've been called to liberty. You're not a son of the bond woman. Hagar, you're a son of the free woman at the end of chapter 4. You've been called to liberty, but only do not use liberty. This is the danger with liberty in one sense. 
You can use it as an opportunity for the flesh. And so a libertinist or someone who's guilty of a licentious view says, well, hey, man, I'm under grace. I can do whatever I want. I can go do this bad thing and do that bad thing. It's all covered by the blood, right? And it is. All our sins are covered if we're a child of God. But you see that attitude, and, and we, we, we're seeing that a lot in the age in which we live. Legalism was more of a problem in the 50s and 60s. Licentiousness is more a problem in the 2000s. To always be pushing the envelope, pushing the edges, seeing what we can get away with. Get as worldly as we can and still be a Christian. That seems to be the motive and the outlook of some. Well, that's not pleasing to the Lord. And he will eventually intervene in a situation like that, won't he? In a disciplinary way. And it will hurt. (laughs) It'll hurt. So he says, rather than use it as an opportunity for the flesh. This is a great statement. The end of verse 13. But through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. So you've been set free, no longer under bondage. So use that freedom to serve to the uttermost under God's guidance with his spirit's strength for the benefit of Christ and the gospel. See, that's a decision. That's a daily decision that we make. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, if you're always criticizing and attacking one another, and this can happen in a Christian fellowship, beware lest you be consumed by one another. It's sad to see this happen. But a Christian church can totally self-destruct, lampstand gone, because they turn inward and just bite at each other all the time picking on each other about this picking on each other about that that can happen once and once you, it's a slippery slope once you start down that road it's real hard to check it and stop it so it's good to catch it early and and we we're all prone to that see so we need to be observant we need to be listening we need to say hey you know don't be so critical of brother so and so he's going through a difficult time or you know don't make the you made a kind of a wild assessment there you don't know all the facts you know don't know all the facts. Be careful of rushing to judgment, leaping to a conclusion without all the facts. Most of the time, we don't know the facts. Amen? We haven't walked in their shoes. We think we know a lot more than we do. So we need to be careful. That's where the whole element of pastoral work comes in. And so then you ask the question, you got to the verse 15, you say, Paul, how? How are we going to do this? And that's in verse 16 to 26. He begins to outline it. So I say then, this is how you do it. You walk in the Spirit. And when you do that, verse 16 says, there's a promise, right? You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If you make a daily, hourly decision to walk in the Spirit. And again, as we said this morning, he's not being ethereal here. He's not, he's, he said, well, how do I walk in the spirit? You know, how do I walk? The spirit is, you know, is a ghost. Do I, you know, you kind of walk on a cloud. You, is it some sort of feeling you get? No, he's told us right here. Walk in the spirit is 
verse 22 and 23. Those characteristics are what you see in your life on a consistent basis. That's what walking in the Spirit looks like. It also is, the other verses in the Bible tell us, it's one that loves to magnify Christ, because that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John 15, right? He will speak concerning me and magnify me. So someone who magnifies Christ, that's an indication that the Spirit's working. Someone who loves the church. Christ loves his church and gave himself for it. So someone who loves his church, that's walking with Christ. That's the spirit of his son. That's consistent. In other words, biblical conduct and behavior. And in one sense, you look at this ninefold list in verse 22 and 23. And at first, it can fool you. Because it almost say, well, that's That's simple. That's simple, but it isn't simple, really. Working it out in detail in difficult interpersonal relationships is always a challenge. Uh, Julio, Lisa and I were talking a few minutes ago about the issue of joy. Joy is part of the fruit of the Spirit. The joy of the Lord is your strength, Nehemiah 8.10. In a difficult crisis situation, Nehemiah said that, too. And and she was asking about some material on joy. And I said, well, one brother who was a famous preacher in England, in the, mainly in the 1900s, said that the Lord wouldn't let him preach on joy, he said, because he felt like, because he hadn't sufficiently experienced it himself to preach on it. Well, that's being honest, and that's being being clear. But, you know, there are a lot of other people you could add to the list of what names of what he's saying there, at least people I've met, including myself. I mean, I am just, I was just thinking that I had to remind myself to smile while I'm singing about our Lord. How many of you were smiling just now? We were singing some songs that should have been giving you a joy. Now, just because you put an external smile on, right, or somebody that walks around whistling and, and, <laughs> and singing all the time hymns and everything, that. You know, the flesh can mimic that, too. That's not a guarantee because it's the heart, right? But don't judge that person right away. Maybe it is from the heart. Give it time to see, right? But joy is a settled assurance, confidence that I'm safe, secure in Christ. For how long? Till I sin? No, forever. See, when you know the joy of the Lord, it's something you experience. And sometimes feeling is attached to it. I think a lot of times feeling is attached to it because feelings are very much a part of who we are. And thank the Lord for that. That's, that's a, I sure wouldn't want to live the, the human life without that dimension of life, right? But we're talking about a, an experience here that's real. You get bad news. The phone rings. Brother so-and-so is going through a difficult time, whatever. And immediately your emotions kick up. You get all rattled. Well, the initial emotional response, we all lose it for a minute or two. That's, that's okay. That's human. It's then when, we, when our mind takes over and says, wait a minute. God's not on vacation. He didn't check out. He's still in control. And so we, we, our mind by the Spirit brings us back into right thinking and we realize, 
oh no, the Lord's still on the throne. I'm still going to heaven. Brother so-and-so, if he's a believer, is going to heaven, even though he might be going through a difficult time. The whole outlook changes, see. Joy. And beloved, we live in a day when the world is around us is looking for joy. They've given up on looking for a lot of them from God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. They've done it with drugs, alcohol, entertainment, movies, game after game, going to thinking they're going to get some sort of exhilaration by watching 11 men or 22 men desperately in need of rest. And they're watched by people, 60,000 people are desperately in need of exercise. That whole kind of idea. And we do. I mean, I've been there. I mean, for me, it was racing, right? I mean, you can take the football. I want to be at Daytona, right? So, I mean, that's, we can get exhilaration. That's not all evil and bad, right? I'm just saying that if you get exhilarated about that and you don't on Lord's Day morning, when you gather around the elements, man, there's a disconnect somewhere in there. You're worshiping God, your Savior, the one who gave himself for you. And you're going to heaven to be with him forever. And you're going to serve him and, and enjoy him forever. And, and you get there and you're just going to be somber. And We need to think about this, beloved. The world out there is watching us. They come in. What do they see? Are they drawn to Christ or are they pushed and repelled away from him? See, that's the thing. The early Christians did not, well, they didn't have Chris Schroeder back then. They didn't have the big board. They didn't have to have an Ezekiel uh, campaign of evangelism. What did they do? They, they were known by their love for one another. The world outside that interacted with them said, man, these people love each other, especially in time of crisis. That's a group I want to be with. And so they began to join them, heard the gospel, got saved, began to participate with them. See. So we saw this verse, verse 17 this morning. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and this is the Christian life. This is Romans 6, 7, and 8, beloved, in just a short span here in Galatians. Romans is written some four or five years later, and, it, and he expands on that. But the flesh truly lusts against the spirit. That is, the things the flesh wants, passionately wants, are not the things the spirit wants. And both of them are in us. <laughs> so that's going to make for some internal conflict. And these are contrary to one another, so you do not always do the things you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. You're not under the law as a means of salvation, see. You can use the law. The Spirit uses all 66 books of the Bible. That includes the first five, right? He uses the entire Word of God to sanctify us, to train us up, to show us what God is like. But it, we're not under the law as a means of justification, as he said in chapter 5 earlier. So we looked at the works of the flesh in verse 19, 20, and 21. With the warning at the end of verse 21, those that practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, period. 
So this is serious. We talk about examining ourselves. And I had a few talk to me afterwards this morning and agreed that that, that would be a good exercise for them. And I challenge to all of us, I've challenged myself. It's something that I feel before the Lord. And I think it's something that we get so busy in our life and in our world. And that's a lot of that busyness is out of our control. But we need to be careful about just activism, just mere act, just moving around. You know, like termites are busy, but they're not building anything. They're tearing it down, right? You know, we want to be busy about building something good with our energy and our time. And so to take time apart, you've got to schedule this. You've got to find a place where you can get quiet with the Lord. And sometimes you have to be creative. I had a brother I worked with in the engineering office that, you know, he later in his years, <laughs> he, he married a woman who uh, had four children, a widow that had four children. And they were young children, you know, and they started. And, and he told me one time, this was about two years into the marriage, he said, he said, Brother Thomas, he says, the only place I can find to get quiet with the Lord is in the bathroom. You know, I have to go in the bathroom and lock the door. And then the kids are pounding the door. Come out, Daddy. Come out and play. Come out. But he found a place where he could do this. So you got to plan it. It won't happen by osmosis. It won't happen on its own. And to examine ourselves from time to time. We looked at the fruit of the Spirit in verses 22 and 23. Against such there's no law that's obvious the end of verse 23. And look what he says in verses 24 to 26 then. Those who are Christ's. Who are Christ's? Believers. Right? Disciples. But I like how he puts it. Those who are Christ, that is, those who belong to Christ, have crucified already the flesh with its passion and desires. This is the reckoning of, of Romans 6.11, right? We don't, we can't crucify the flesh. You can't mortify the flesh by yourself. It's too much. It's too powerful. Believe me. But God can. The Holy Spirit's the only one. Psychologists can't deal with the flesh either. They can mollify it into certain areas, and to, but they cannot suppress it ultimately. Only the Holy Spirit can deal with it. But this is a reckoning on the fact that we were united to Christ in his death. And then is when we crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That is, we are no longer under the dominion of our passions and desires. You know how awesome that is? There are some people out in the world that would give their right arm to get deliverance from their passions and desires. And if they would just receive Christ, He would do that for them immediately. So when we submit to our passions and desires... It's because either we were tricked, deceived by the flesh or the devil or the world system, or we willingly submitted to them because we don't have to anymore. But that's only true of born-again Christians, see, because we have the Holy Spirit. So he says, if we live or since we live in the Spirit, since we live because we live in the Spirit, And the Spirit lives in us. Let us also walk in the Spirit. See the logic? Since we live 
We have spiritual life because of regeneration, because of the work of the Holy Spirit and regeneration. Let's walk in the Spirit. We live because of the Spirit. So therefore, walk in the Spirit. One has to do with our position. The other has to do with our practice. We live in the Spirit. That's our position. We walk in the Spirit. That's our practice every day. And then he gives another warning. Verse 26. Let us not become conceited. Now, does that seem out of place to you? You're moving along. You're reading about the fruit of the Spirit. You're reading about the works of the flesh. You're reading about the Spirit's work. And and all of a sudden you say, whoa, conceited. Why, why Why would you be concerned about that here, Paul? Well, why would he? Because of what he just said. (laughs) When we realize that we live in the Spirit and we can walk according to the Spirit, as he says in chapter 4, we become sons by adoption and we're no longer a slave but a son and heir of Jesus Christ, we can begin to think, hey, I'm somebody now. He's going to deal with that in chapter 6. Let us not become conceited. And that conceit works itself out in two different ways. Provoking two participles, right? Provoking one another, envying one another. Provoking, putting those jabs in, you know. Usually with words, with barbed tongue, you know. Envying one another. See, provoking one another, that's trying to tear somebody down. Because you're conceited, you're stuffed up with yourself, and so you want to put them down to make yourself feel elevated, right? It's an old technique. It goes all the way back to Adam. Envying one another is, I want what you got. I don't have enough. I want what you got. Instead of just trusting the Lord with what he's given us. That sets up verses 1 through 10 of chapter 6 which is probably as far as we'll think about tonight. And he's he's going into more detail here of what spirit-controlled living does, especially in our relationships in the church, but even outside the church, in the community. And he begins with a very practical situation. A brother or sister If a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, do what? Make an example out of them and send them away. Is that what it says? This is a command. Restore. We ought to be about restoring people, not tearing them down. As I mentioned during the week, this word restore, it's a really beautiful word. It's used in a couple different ways. In the medical sense, it's used of setting a broken bone. As we said the other night, if you've got a broken bone and it's out of alignment, you want just anybody to set it? You want somebody you know, that's rough and tumble to come in there? I'll set that bone for you. Let's see, I'll get it right. Or do you want someone who's Expert in medical and gentle setting that bone, being careful, see, lest they do more damage. 
That's what the spiritually minded brother or sister is about, see. It's also used in the sense of mending nets. Now, most of us don't mend nets. You've probably never seen a fish net. Has anybody seen a fish? We've we got some fishermen around in here. But, but those nets, I mean, I haven't done it either. <laughs> but I've watched them. I looked at some of those nets in the detail of the threading. And, you know, they get a hole in them. The fish gets. And so you have to sew that up. And it's very careful, painstaking work to restore the net so that it does what it was supposed to do. That's what you're doing here. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Already you're halfway there, right? If you can do it in a spirit of gentleness, which is part of the fruit of the Spirit, see? And watching, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And this is where we have to be realistic. For example, even someone who's a spiritual brother or sister, if they were saved out of alcoholism, I would not recommend they be used to help someone who needed to be restored in a situation where alcohol was the problem, lest they be drawn back into their old life. See, And you could plug in any other kind of area. That's just wisdom, isn't it? And being honest about ourselves and knowing ourselves, knowing what our past was and where our areas of weakness are. The devil sure knows them. <laughs> he knows how to exploit that to, to tempt us. And so he says they're overtaken in a trespass. They're suddenly caught by surprise. They're tripped up. That kind of person restore. And then he adds in verse 2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. See, in this book that deals so much about the Mosaic law, here he brings in another law, but it's the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? It's the law of love. <laughs> James calls it, in James 1.25, the perfect law of liberty, <laughs> which is consistent. Paul's using that same word, liberty, too, being set free. But seeing it being set free to love, not being set free to sin. See, that's what he said earlier, right? So that freedom is restrained, if you will, or guided by love. And that's why you couldn't write enough laws for a situation. You, I mean, the Mosaic Law was written for an agrarian economy in the, the land of Palestine with certain seasons that, are, that apply there, right? The early and latter rains and things like that. It doesn't work like that in Houston. The rains come differently. And, and, and all kinds of areas that are confined to a particular people in a particular circumstance in a particular historical situation. So it's not going to fit. In 2015, there are all kinds of situations that are new situations that we encounter. So God has expanded it in the church age with grace. It's the law of love. You do what's best for that person. You seek to restore. You seek to edify. You seek to bear one another's burdens. This is a beautiful thing to see happen. In a group of Christians. Some Christian. Now he's going to talk about. Our small burdens. Or the burden he calls it. It'd be like a knapsack. Those are burdens that we just. We have to carry ourselves. There are some things that we. But this is a big. This is like carrying a piano. You know having that on your shoulder. Carrying that piano. And. 
Hope you do well, brother. Have a good night. And you see that he's under a burden like that. That's not fulfilling the law of Christ. If they are under a burden like that, we should have a sense of wanting to get up under that thing and say, here, let me walk along with you for a little while and help you carry it. Let me call you a few times. Let me come visit you. Right? Let me write a few notes of encouragement now and then. You know, it, it takes an extra step. But that's what love does. And it's neat to sometimes think outside the box. Think of ways that we can encourage one another that aren't the typical way. I've seen this happen. And it usually brings tears to my eyes. It probably would yours too. When you see a brother or sister meeting a need and the elders didn't have to go ask him to do it. He did it on his own, initiated by the Spirit of God in that heart and, and went to help. And you just see it. It's happening all the time, beloved. That's why I can't bash the church. There's a lot going on in the church that's wonderful that the Spirit of God, Christ knows what he's doing. He's still the head of the church. You know, he's still doing things and, and a lot of it we don't see and we don't have to see it. He does. And he's the one that's going to reward it anyway. And then he adds in verse 3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he is guilty of self-deception. There's a parallel to this in Romans 12:3, right? Everyone ought to think, even by the grace that's been given to us, that ought not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. In other words, there's always this tendency as Christians to fall into that, especially if we're given a special opportunity. You know, you're given a special opportunity to do something at camp. And you begin to think, wow, you know, I wonder if this camp could operate without me. Or a particular VBS or a particular role in a, in a different function in the local community, the local believers. And we, we can, this, we're always prone. That's the conceit he was talking about, right? If anyone thinks he's something, see, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Robert E. Lee said that at the end of the Civil War to a, a black brother that was next to him. Remember that? The ground, they said, How you know, the ground's level at the foot of the cross? We all come the same way. We all live on the basis the same way. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. In other words, it's not been assigned to you or me to be a critique of each other's work for the Lord. Now, this is apart from the role and responsibility the elders have in the way of guiding and disciplining. But as far as the work we do for the Lord, it, it, I don't have to be checking it because I'm not in a competition with you. See, we're in a family. It's not a competition. Out there, it's usually a competition. You better do better than the Joneses in the business office or you won't get your promotion, right? And that's just the way it often works. And and a a faithful Christian, a Christian that's walking by faith, can even avoid submitting to that and trust the Lord. But it takes faith to do that. But it's not a competition. I love that about the Christian life, see? See? You remember the story of the, the I think she was a, a twin to her sister. Remember, they were in an Olympics and one of them hurt her knee and fell down. She was out in the lead and she stopped, went back to get her sister and carried her across the line. Gave up winning, gave up the gold medal because she's not going to leave her behind. See, 
How many times do we do that? Well, I want to be first. The first shall be last, the Lord said. Leave that with the Lord. If there's a fallen brother or sister, go back and help them and get them. We all come across the line together, see. I love this. This is this had to be revolutionary when this was happening in the first century. It still is. For each one shall bear his own load in verse five. Different word than burden in verse two. Let him who has taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches. And that's consistent with what Paul teaches in other places. The word of God teaches that in the Old Testament, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9. Doesn't the law teach us this, that, that we're to share in these kind of things? And then that warning in verses 7 and 8, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. When you look at your life, when you look at what you're about, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. This is what's called the law of the harvest. And is if you're a farmer, it's real simple to get. If you're a city person in the concrete jungle, maybe you haven't seen the sowing principle. Maybe you have a garden in your backyard, though, and you've done this. But when you sow that seed, there are certain things that happen. First of all, when you sow the seed, what comes up is the fruit of that seed. <laughs> so you sow to the flesh. What you're going to get is more of the flesh. You're going to get more than what you sowed because that's the harvest principle. It always comes back in a larger number than what you sowed. And it always comes back later than when you sowed it. That's the scary part of that. You see that in some of the kings in the Old Testament where they go down a particular road, Manasseh, one of them, and it looks like he's getting away with it. But boy, when that hurricane hits, it hits hard in his life. All at once. <laughs> and... This principle of the harvest is so true. He sows to his flesh, he's going to reap what? A corruption. You sow to the spirit, you're going to reap eternal life. Which one do you think is a good investment? <laughs> corruption or eternal life? You young people, you're looking at your whole life in front of you in the will of the Lord. You're making decisions. Where are you going to spend your, your time as far as location? Who are you going to spend it with if you have a life partner? What career you may be involved in, right? And it's going to impact 40, 50, 60 years of your life down the way of just a couple of decisions. It's sobering, isn't it? You want to reap eternal life or you want to reap corruption? It's up to us. And let us not grow weary in well-doing. And that's where verse 9 and 10 wraps it up. You know... Living the Christian life, I talk to believers around the country, and sometimes they just get tired. You get tired of living the Christian life sometimes? I mean, we can all relate to one another in that. Sometimes it just gets exhausting. And that's when we've got to take time apart with our Lord, like he told his disciples, right? Come you apart and rest a while. You've got to plan that because it will get you physically too if you don't plan for that. But he says, don't give up. Remember the writer of Hebrews? You have need of perseverance. So that after you've done the work, you shall receive the promised reward. To stay at it. And again, it's only by the help of God's Spirit that we can stay at it. Else we, we will give up. 
especially if you're in spiritual conflict. So let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we don't lose heart, if we don't fall to discouragement. Therefore, as we have opportunity from God, let us do good to all. People outside the church, people inside the church, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Especially those who are of the household of faith. That's our priority. And there is, that is a, a priority needs to be in our mind. Believers, ministering to them is a primary focus. And sometimes, because of needs in the local church, that fills all your schedule. That's okay. You can't do everything. You can't be involved and, and spread yourself out in all kinds of community activities and be involved in the church to it to the degree that you need to be. Excuse me, in a group this size, I would think you'd have your hands pretty well full ministering to each other if you're ministering to each other. But if you're not, you may have a lot of time to minister in the community. I wonder if you're ministering to each other because that's important. That's a priority, doing good to all. Based on decisions we make in keeping with the word and will of God. Amen? You know, the writer of hymn 533, and maybe we could close with that, Judson Van Deventer, good Dutchman. When he wrote this hymn, he was a gifted artist, and he had a promising career in art that, uh, that he was going to, he felt like that was his life calling, but he began to have some stirrings in his heart and some evangelistic campaigns that he was involved in, and in preaching the Word of God, and people were coming up to him and saying, you know, look, you know, the, I think the Lord's hand is on you, you the way you preach the word of God, people are touched. And he, there came a fork on the road in his life. My fork was in 1986. And I had to set aside NASCAR and stock car racing, which was everything to me up to that point. And, and make the Lord first. Now, we should say as we sing this, I surrender all, that we put a caveat when we sing it because we want to sing it maybe with the aspiration for tonight because be careful i mean if you're not really meaning you're doing this we're just singing it for aspiration but it's something to aspire to there comes a point romans 12 1 where we realize because of the mercies of god with us that we're going to offer our body a living sacrifice. That's in the arrow's tense. That means it's a point in time, one-time decision, and everything after that flows from it. He came to that, and that's what he's talking about here. So number 533. Thank you.
Father, as we think about surrendering all to you and to the Lord Jesus by the Holy Spirit and his work in us. It's a solemn thing to think about, Lord. But after a week like you've given us this past week, where we've been considering a reawakening, a reviving of the hearts of your people, and you have stirred us in many amazing and encouraging ways. And we thank you for that, Lord. You are so faithful. You're so loving. And Lord, as we think about these practical implications of what it means to live for you with everything we are and have, maybe some in this room tonight, maybe some who've been with us this week, we can be praying, interceding for them that you would help them to see that your call on our lives is the most important thing after receiving Christ as Savior the most important thing we can do help us to have an eternal perspective Lord is not the Lamb who was slain worthy of the reward of his sufferings And Lord, be with us as we travel home. Give us journeying mercies. And thank you for those some have traveled a long distance this week to be with us. We thank you, O Lord, for all your goodness. And we give thanks and ask these blessings in the Lord Jesus' precious name. Amen.